we just got into, back into the book of Nehemiah after being away from it for a little while. And so I don't have a, a, a specific Mother's Day message for you this morning. If you'll allow me, I'd like for us to continue uh, walking through the book of Nehemiah this morning. But I do have a prayer for us today that the principles that we talk about in this portion of Nehemiah, that you will intentionally think and ask the Lord, how is it that these principles can be applied? Not just we're going to talk about it in terms of the entire church, but I also want you to think about it in terms of your family. How do I take these principles, moms and dads, and establish these in my home in a way that honors the Lord? So today we're going to move into chapter 7 of Nehemiah. In chapter 6, we saw the opposition and the attacks um, on God's plan from Nehemiah's enemies become personal. When they couldn't take out all of the people and stop them, they decided to go after Nehemiah specifically. And we saw um, that they chose to accuse him, defame him, and call his motives and his leadership into question just enough to keep people from listening to him. And that's all that has to be done. It may not be, Nehemiah was not guilty of any of the things he was being accused of, and they knew that. But if they could just call him into question enough to get people to not trust him and not follow his leadership, then they had accomplished their mission. So there are, I, I want us to look at chapter 7, but we're going to back up. We didn't finish all of chapter 6, and there's some important things at the end of chapter 6 this morning that I want us to read. So... Um, look with me in verse 15 of Nehemiah chapter 6. If you found 7, just go backwards a little bit and pick up verse 15. It says, The wall was completed in 52 days on the 25th day of the month of Elul. When all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence, for they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. So, it's done. Verse 15, the whole wall is finished. Remember the last time Nehemiah said the wall was almost finished, all that was left to do was put up the doors and the gates. But now, the end of chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7, the wall is completely finished. So I want us to just stop and look back. You know when you work on something for a long time and then you just kind of take a step back and look at what you did? Let's take a step back and look at what, what happened here. We had Nehemiah, who was a leader who had zero experience in construction or building things. He was a cupbearer for the king. We had a crew of workers on the wall that were all unskilled in construction. Not a single one of them knew anything about how to construct stuff. They were all sorts of different um, professions and from different walks of life, but none of them were professional builders. They accomplished this while being surrounded by their political enemies on every side. They were threatened with military violence, not only from inside the city, but also from the outside. And they were in the midst of a regional famine. And they accomplished the rebuilding and repair of this wall in 52 days. 52 days. I got curious and I googled and I found out that according to the 2019 survey of construction from the Census Bureau, the average completion time of a single family home is seven months. 
on average, it takes seven months to finish building one single family home. And some of you may have been in construction projects with your house like that before, and some of you may be going, yeah, I wish, seven months. That sounds great to me because it's taken you a whole lot longer. So with the technology that we have, the machinery, the tools, all of the things that we have to help us in constructing a house, it takes on average seven months for us to do that with the equipment and the technology that we have, but with these primitive tools and unskilled people, they accomplish this in less than two months. So the point is that when the the nations around the Jews looked at this wall and saw what was going on and realized they did this with what little they had to work with in such a short amount of time, it was obvious that this was the work of God. There was no doubt about it. And so this was a huge victory. This was an overwhelming victory. It was a victory for God. It was a victory for God's people. It was a victory for the city of Jerusalem. And it was a victory for Nehemiah as a leader. Because what he had set out to lead the people to do was finally finished. They were done with it. But verses 17 and 19 remind us of something that's very true that we need to always remember. And this is our first principle to start out with this morning. The finished task is not the end of the battle. You may be thinking, well, I thought the book of Nehemiah was all about building the wall. Well, we're only halfway through the book and the wall's finished. So what else is there to talk about? Oh, there's tons more that Nehemiah has to deal with because the battle isn't over. The purpose for why God called him is not completed. This one task is, this one part of the building is done, but there is much more to do because the end of chapter 6 tells us that Nehemiah still had enemies. You remember Tobiah. There's Sanballat and Tobiah that seem to be the two, um, kind of the two heads of the snake Um, that is coming after Nehemiah. Well, in the end of chapter 6, when you read those last verses, you find out that Tobiah had an inside connection with the Jewish people inside the city because of some marriage relationships, because of who he married. He kind of married into some Jewish families that gave him an inside influence. And so it also talks about the nobles and the relationship that Tobiah had with these nobles. Now, I don't know if you remember the nobles, but there was a little detail back in chapter 3. You remember when Nehemiah is giving the account and he's saying, here is the wall and here's all the sections of the wall that's being built and these people worked on this section and these people worked on this section. You remember we talked about that. In chapter 3, verse 5, the nobles were the ones that didn't pick up a hand to do anything. You remember? Of all that account in chapter 3, there was this one group that Nehemiah said they literally didn't even lift a finger to help. It was the nobles. These are the people that are in cahoots with Tobiah here at the end of chapter 6. The ones who aren't helping, the ones who aren't involved, don't want to have anything to do with this project. They are, they are in relationship with Tobiah. And what would happen is that they became almost like double agents. They were Jews But they were reporting to Tobiah outside the city, hey, this is what's going on. This is what Nehemiah is saying. This is what he's doing. And then Tobiah would, in return, write these letters back to Nehemiah, basically saying, hey, I know what you're doing, and this is what we're going to do about it, trying to intimidate 
Nehemiah. The same kind of stuff that we've already seen in chapter 6. So we need to know the end of chapter 6 reminds us that when we accomplish a great victory, we can't stop. Because what do we want to do? When we have a big project that we're trying to work on and complete, and it takes a long time, it takes 52 days or longer for us to do it, and we've worked really, really hard on it. When we get to the end of it, what do we want to do? We want to, we want to stop for a minute. We want to step back and, and get a glass of sweet tea and sit in the chair and just look at what we did, right? Some of you, some of you guys, husbands, maybe um, there's been a project at your house that you've been working on. You kind of identify with me here where there, I remember when I was trying to build a deck at our house. Um, this is how I felt. I wasn't even completely finished, but I got finished enough to where it looked like I was done and I wanted to just, I don't want to do anything. You know how that feels. Like I've been working so hard. We're done with this and now we're not going to do anything. What, what happens at my house though is as soon as I'm done with this project, uh, my sweet wife Kim has about three or four other projects that in her mind what she's thinking is, okay, now that we're done with that, now we can move on to that. And what I want to say is we're not doing anything. I finished this thing. And, okay, we'll work on that, but we ain't working on it now. We're going to wait. We're going to look at, I want to just go out, like I literally remember just going outside when I was done and just standing in the yard looking at it. (laughs) I'm just going to stand here and look at it and and enjoy it and and be proud of what I've accomplished and like talk to me, give me me a month and then we'll start talking about something else. I don't want to do anything else right now. And that's our nature. But we can't do that, and especially in our spiritual lives. No matter how big of a victory that we experience, it always means that there's another battle coming. So we can't stop. And Nehemiah knew because there was still opposition. Even though the wall was built, there were still threats. There was still opposition that was coming. And so we move into chapter 7. So now the wall's done, and you may say, well, now the wall's finished. What else is there to do, Nehemiah? So we're going to see the insight that Nehemiah has to know that ultimately there was a different goal. Nehemiah's work was not all about the wall. There was something bigger. I know that if you're looking at chapter 7 in your Bible or if you've looked at it already, some of you are panicking right now because take a look in your Bible at all 73 verses of chapter 7. And some of y'all are thinking, we got plans. (laughs) We got stuff to do. Fear not, um, moms, I would not do that to you. Um, I'm not even going to try to read through chapter 7. If if I felt like I needed to read through all of chapter 7, it would take us until after church time for me to just try to read it and pronounce all of the names somewhat correctly. So we're not going to do that. But I do want us to look at the first five verses of chapter 7 and focus on those. So look with me. Let's start with verses 1 and 2. Because there's some great lessons here. And again, these are going to be lessons that we're going to apply to the context of building our church. But also I want you to think about and ask the Lord, how do I apply these in building my my family? Verse 1. When the wall had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. Then I put my brother Hanani in charge of Jerusalem, along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress. 
because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. So the great task of the wall was finished, but Nehemiah immediately began to put people in place to make sure that the greater purpose that was inside the wall began to come together. Nehemiah knew that it wasn't all about the wall on the outside, that the bigger task was building up what was on the inside. So he names three specific people in, the, in verse 1 that he puts in place. The gatekeepers, who were they? They were, um, the, they were really important in maintaining order. They were literally the, the guards that were stationed for protection. And so Nehemiah puts gatekeepers in place and he puts them around the city, especially at these entrance gates that they've built. And so he secures them. And then did anybody else, when I was reading verse 1, go, singers? Like, did you think that and go, okay, he put gatekeepers and Levi, singers, what are singers supposed to do? Well, what do you think singers are supposed to do? Sing. You say, well, what good is that? It's very powerful because the Jews understood that when they sang out praises to God, that God responded. We need to know that when we come together as people and we sing, whether we think we can sing on key or not, when we sing the praises of God, God responds to the praises of his people. So much so, and in their life and in their experience, if you go back to 2 Chronicles 20, maybe just scratch that in the side of your notes and go back and read that chapter. King Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Judah at that time, was in a battle and he literally sent the singers into the front line of the battle. Why would he do that? Singers can't fight, or we might think singers can't fight. They weren't there to fight. They were there to sing. And literally in chapter 20, what happens is when the singers went to the front line of the battle and they started to sing and they started to worship and proclaim the glory of their God, God responded. And he took down their enemies with nothing but the praises of his people. And he defended his people against their enemies. So Nehemiah knew and the people knew part of our defense of this city is going to be tied up in our worship, in our praise. And so I believe that what this means is that he literally stationed singers. And where there were gatekeepers that were watching with their weapons, there were singers. And they were singing as if to say, if, you're, if our enemies are approaching, they're going to hear the praises of the God that defends us. Before you even get here, you need to hear who you're coming to face. You're not coming to face us, you're coming to face our God. Maybe they sang a song like, You Are God Alone. Because that's the kind of song, a song that proclaims the identity of their God that stands out among all the other gods that are worshipped by all the other nations. There's only one. And they're singing his praise and glory. So it was a line of defense for them. And folks, I think worship is powerful even today. I think our songs and our worship is powerful. Sometimes you say, well, I don't sing because I don't feel like singing. Like things are bad. I don't feel like, you know what? I, I think sometimes if we practice the discipline of worshiping and singing, sing, you, life may be falling apart and things are terrible and you don't feel like singing, you should probably sing anyway. You should sing anyway because God responds to the praises of his people. You want to see something happen, just praise the Lord no matter what's going on and see if he doesn't show up. So we placed the, the gatekeepers and the singers 
and then the Levites. The Levites were the men who were responsible for all of the aspects of worship in the temple. We see that Nehemiah, in opposition to the enemies, he doesn't just think militarily. His focus is turning inward toward the people. And what he says is we are going to put the people in place to reestablish the proper worship of God that has, that has been lost over the exile. The city is in ruin still. It's in rubble. Like we've got the wall built, but the inside of the city is still a mess. And the people are still scattered. We have to start bringing the people together, restoring the right worship of God. So Nehemiah is shifting here in chapter 7. His focus now goes off of building this exterior wall and his focus turns on the inside and says, how are we going to build up God's people? How are we going to build the holy city back up from the inside out? And so what I want us to think about this morning is in context of our church as we are asking God to help us renew and rebuild our church, but also in your families. I hope that that's your prayer through this series too, that you're constantly thinking, asking the Lord, how do these apply to me and my family? How do I build my family up in spiritual strength? Well, the way you do it is from the inside out. And so how do we do that? And I think in these five verses, there are three specific things that I want us to focus on this morning. How do we build from the inside out? Number one, faithful and fearful leadership. Leadership is essential if we're going to build up strength in the church or in our families from the inside out. The men in verse 1 were put in place to begin to reestablish worship. When we talk about providing for our families or caring for our families, we usually think of that in, in material terms, don't we? Sometimes the ambition that we think of for, for building up our families is we want to we build as big and as great of a house as we can or find the perfect place for us to live. We want, to have, we want to have cars, we want to have all of these things, not even so much because we're materialistic, but just because we feel like that's how we build a family. It's the American dream, right? But I want you to know that we can build and, and put together the biggest and the best that money and labor can provide, and if there's not spiritual leadership raising up in our homes, then it's of no value to the kingdom. It's empty. Our homes as full as we want to fill them with stuff and as great as we want to decorate them and build them up and, and have the, the best that we can possibly have without spiritual leadership, our homes will be empty. The same thing applies to our church. We could renovate this property and we've, we've already looked at challenges before in the past. We could... We could spend millions and millions and millions of dollars. We could, we could level all of this and raise this land up and build something brand new. We could, we could do all sorts of stuff. We could find another piece of property, build this big, huge, awesome, technologically advanced with every bell and whistle that we can think of and build this church that everybody will ride past and go, wow, look at First Baptist Lindale. That's awesome. But if we don't have spiritual leadership, building up the people on the inside, it's, it, it's just a pretty building. It's just something for people to walk, to drive by and go, wow, I might go to that church. And then they come in and they find that it's full of deadness. 
Because all we focused on is the wall. All we focused on is the exterior. We've got to build up leadership inside the walls. And we need people who are called by God to lead others, to seek the Lord, to worship the Lord, to follow the Lord. Or our church will be worthless. And it's not just the staff that I'm talking about. It's not just as we grow, we hire more professional ministers to be on staff to make sure that all of this happens. The leadership is here as well. And you'll see that in just a few minutes as we keep going. But God wants to raise up leaders within our church. And and what kind of characteristics do we see in those leaders? So as, as we keep going... Nehemiah specifically in these verses mentions two men that he puts into leadership positions. Hananiah, who was his brother, we find him in chapter 1. And if you remember, Hananiah is the brother of Nehemiah who started this whole thing. God used Hananiah from the very beginning because remember Nehemiah is in Persia. He's serving the king of Persia. And Hananiah comes to him and he sees them and he says, hey, how is it back home? And Hananiah is the one who first reveals to Nehemiah, oh man, it's bad. It's bad. Things are, things are torn down. Our, our people are scattered everywhere. There's no more wall. Homes have been destroyed and people are leaving and they're not coming back. It's bad. And that's what ignites that vision in his heart. So what we know about Hananiah is that he's still sticking around. He's still with Nehemiah. So that means he's faithful. He hasn't bailed on the project. He was there from the very beginning and he's persevered through it all the way through. He he didn't get discouraged and pack up and leave like everybody else. He didn't get mad at Nehemiah. He didn't get mad about what was going on and decide to take all his stuff and go to another church. He stuck around because he was loyal. He was faithful. He was dependable. And so Nehemiah gives him a place of leadership from the very beginning. He was there and he was faithful. And then he mentions Hananiah, and he is chosen. It says because he was the leader of the fortress, but not just because of his military. That's not the reason he chose him. He says he's chosen because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 is one of my favorite of all the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You want to grow in your relationship with the Lord, you have a healthy grasp of the fear of the Lord. You say, well, Eric, I don't want to be afraid of God. You should be. You should be somewhat because if you understand the holiness of God, if you understand his character and who he is and his righteousness and you know who you are, you should be afraid of him. Jesus even said, Jesus told the people, hey, don't don't be afraid of of the people who the worst they can do to you is kill you, kill your body. He's like, don't worry about them. The one you you should be afraid of is the one who has the power to destroy your body and destroy your soul in hell. Like, and for children of God, for believers, we we don't have a relationship with God where we're just petrified where we're afraid he's going to, you know, thump us or, or, or kill us at every 
mistake we make because he's our Abba, he's our Father, he loves us. But there's a reverence that we should come before God with in understanding a, a healthy fear of the Lord. And that's what Hananiah's characteristic that set him out from, apart from other people. I, I, I recalled a story this morning uh, before I was in ministry. Some of y'all know I worked in local Christian retail and I was the music guy, and there was a, um, there was a particular um, opportunity that I had with Kim to go to Nashville to be a part of a retail gospel music, uh, Christian music conference. It was during GMA week that's in Nashville every year. And I got the chance to go to this conference, and it was awesome because we saw lots of uh, musicians and people that we considered celebrities, and we got to meet them, and it was really cool. Um, but there was one particular night that we were invited to a dinner that this certain record label hosted. And so we go to this dinner and we're sitting at the table and I look across and I see Steve Camp. Some of y'all have no idea who Steve Camp is. Some of you do. Uh, He was a very prominent Christian musician in the 80s. Incredible songwriter. uh, Played the piano like nobody's business. And he, he was known for the poignant biblical content in his songs like his songs just echoed scripture and Steve Camp was one who spoke boldly to the church his songs were were very poignant and Steve Camp also did something right before this time that I saw him at this conference that was uh, pretty bold the Christian music industry just got to be very and still in some ways is it, it sometimes it gets very business driven and it becomes all about money Steve Camp was one of those musicians that put ministry above everything, and he hated the direction that the Gospel Music Association and the Christian music industry was going. You remember the, the reformer Martin Luther in church history wrote the 95 Theses and posted them on the door of Wittenberg as a, as a statement of the needed reform that needed to happen in the Catholic Church. This, this was like one of, the, one of the launching points of the Reformation in church history. Steve Camp wrote a 95 Theses to the Christian music industry and published it in the Nashville newspaper, full page. And I thought that was awesome. Everybody else didn't because his, his music career went downhill from there because people didn't like the way he spoke out. But I knew that he had spoken out. And I saw him and I, I, I geeked out. And I told Kim, I'm like, I got I to go talk to him. Like, I, I just have to let him know, like, how much I appreciate what he's done. So dinner's over. I've got my eye on him the whole time. He's not really with anybody. So I walk over to him, and I just, I'm like, I'm only going to talk for a minute. And I reach my hand out. I'm like, Mr. Camp, I'm, uh, my name's Eric. I'm a, I'm a buyer for a store. I'm, I've been a huge fan for a lot of years. And I just want you to know how grateful I am for the boldness that you have to stand up for for the things that you see going on in the industry. And it should have been a conversation that I really didn't remember, but he said something to me I've never forgotten, word for word. He looked at me, and he said, you know what? He said, that's very kind. Thank you for that. He said, but really, it just comes down to one thing. I fear God more than I fear the Gospel Music Association. And I thought, man, I want to be like you. (laughs) I was just... So encouraged by that. This is what we're talking about. I think Hananiah is the kind. We need people who will, who will rise up in leadership from within the inside of the walls and say, I fear God more than I fear people. 
and we will follow him and we will do what he desires for us to do no matter what happens. Leadership, faithful and fearful leadership. That's what I'm talking about. That's number one. Number two, an invested community. Look at verse three. I said to them, do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot and let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes. Again, a tremendous victory had been won. Even though it was built, the wall was not going to protect itself. It needed people. It needed diligent watchmen to be appointed and guard the walls. The instructions that Nehemiah gives at the beginning of that verse has to do with what time of the day the gates would be open. Normally, you would open the gates at the beginning of the day, close the gates at the end of the day. Nehemiah says, no, the end of the day and the beginning of the day are the times when we're going to be most vulnerable. So we're going to leave the gates closed until late in the morning after the sun is high. And then we're going to close the gates early in the evening, way before the end of the day, so that we have a secure city, so that we know who's coming in and who's going out. But you notice who he calls to be a part of this security. Verse 3 says, station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards. Not only did the leadership take responsibility for defending the city, but they passed on that responsibility to the citizens, to the people who lived in the city. The leadership guarded the people, but then they said, you have a responsibility and you have a role to play, not just in guarding our city, but in guarding your own home. He says, put some of the citizens around the wall at their post and some at their homes. He was basically saying, it's in your best interest for you to be a part of what's going on. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. You say, how do we apply this? Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Peter says to the believers there who, who are the Christians in the New Testament who are scattered all, all over Rome, facing all kinds of persecution, he says this to them, be sober-minded and be alert because the devil is prowling. He says there is a vested interest that you should have in being a part of guarding and being alert for the city's sake because it's going to affect you and it's going to affect your family. This is basically what he was saying, was that we are here to lead you and we are here to protect you, but you have got to have some skin in the game. It's not just up to me. It's not just up to the people that we have stationed around the wall. Personal investment in our own spiritual lives. And you say, well, the spiritual life of my family, my home is important to me, Eric. We're at church. That, that, that count for something, right? Yeah, of course it does. Absolutely. There's no other place I want you to be right now than in here with us. But don't come, don't come here and bring your family and just rely on the professional leadership to be the guard outside your home. 
we come together and we encourage one another and we build each other up. What my purpose, my biblical purpose as your pastor and this staff's purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To, to give you the tools and give you what you need to be able to defend your own homes. Nehemiah was saying, we've got, we're taking care of keeping watch on the outside of the city, but we need you guys to make sure that you're standing between you, between the enemy and your house. You need to be standing guard at your own front door. You've got to be a part. You have to be invested in everything that we're doing. Not just for the sake of everybody else, but for your own sake. And this invested community that I'm talking about is not just an idea of everybody just look out for themselves. You just take care of you and your family and don't worry about anybody else. No, that's what church is about. Like we invest in each other's lives and families. We help each other defend our own homes. Do you see that? We're, we're guarding our city together. I think about all the times that, that people misunderstand like what church is for, maybe in, in student ministry and children's ministry for years, anytime I say, well, we want our kids to know the Lord. We want our kids to be raised in church, so we're going to bring them to church. And we'll give them to Ashton. We'll give them to Allen, and they'll take care of that. No, you're setting yourself up. No, the one, the one who needs to be standing at the front door of your home is you. You stand outside your home, the city comes together, and we rally around. We build a wall of our church family, and we guard and protect one another as best we can. But Nehemiah says, everybody needs to be guarding their own house. What investment are you making? What investment are you making spiritually in your home when you're not here? What investment are you making in the lives of other families? You know, Bible study and Sunday school groups, that's exactly what those are for. Like in this room, it might be difficult to do that. But when you get into a Bible study group or a small group, that's exactly what that's for. We're going to get in this group with two, three, four, five, six other families. And we're going to get to know each other. And then we're going to find out what's going on in each other's life. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to help defend one another. An invested community. And then there's a third thing. How do we build from the inside out? Number three, passion to pursue people. We have to have faithful and fearful leadership that is bold, faithfully serving the Lord, not afraid of people, but fearful of the Lord more. An invested community that buys in, not as spectators, but as participants. And then number three, a passion to pursue people. Look at verses four and five. I want you to look at the state of this. This just jumped out at me after the past two years that we have gone through. The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and no houses had been built yet. Then my God put into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the geological record of those who came back first and I found the following written in it. So that's where it picks up in verse 6 and it goes through verse 73 and Nehemiah recalls that genealogical record of the first wave of Jews that returned from exile. And if you wanted to see that, that's a a reprise of what's in Ezra chapter 2. 
But look at the state of the city. It was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. There was lots of space for people, but there, were, there weren't a lot of people there. Remember, the wall has been rebuilt, but houses are still destroyed. People are just kind of living the best they can. Most of the people had left. They had gone and they had built and gotten outside of the walls of the city and they had gotten comfortable and established a new security, a new place and got comfortable there and to this point saw no need or even had any desire to come back to the city. And Nehemiah says, now we're doing something now. We've got the wall rebuilt and we're starting to rebuild people from the inside out. It's time for our people to come back. It's time for our people to come back home. And he says that God put it into my mind. And and the people that he specifically went after, and it was not a general call to, hey, everybody who left, y'all come back. It was a specific effort because he, he established a census within the city. Because before you can figure out who you're missing, you gotta figure out who you've got. And so he does a census to figure out who's here. And then he takes that genealogy of that first wave of of exiles who have come back. And he says, let's compare. Let's figure out who we've got, who's here. And then let's figure out all the people that are not here. And let's pursue them. Let's go after them. Invite them to come back home. Because this is where God's people are supposed to be. At the beginning of this year, um, I remember... I I called on our deacons and encouraged them and asked them as they manage and care for um, their ministry families. Each of our deacons has a family ministry and they have eight to ten families that they're given charge to, to build a relationship with, to keep in touch with. And so I went to them at the beginning of the year and and said knowing that the Lord had laid Nehemiah on my heart. And I said, guys, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take your list and, and start contacting people. Find out where they are because we don't know. Some people are coming back, but some people aren't. So let's intentionally and specifically reach out to them, not out of guilt, but out of love. To say, hey, we, we love you. We think we're past this thing that, that crippled us. I don't even want to say it. We think we're past this. And so now we feel like God is raising us back up and he's rebuilding something. And we've, we've reestablished some things. And we've got a, it's like you're saying, we've got a wall now. And we're building things back up from the inside out. And we want you to be a part of it because this is, this is where you belong. You're part of us, Nehemiah. He, he wasn't just going after anybody who wanted to come in. He was specifically going after the people who had the Jewish heritage, the ones he, he was going after, the Hebrews, specifically, and saying this, is, this city was established, this is God's city for, for the dwelling of his people. We want you to come back. And that's, that's what we have to be a part of now. This is, this is the phase that we're in right now as a church. We're rebuilding and people are coming back. I mean, look around you. I, I, I wondered, I didn't know how long it would be until I saw a room that looked like this again. A year and a half ago, a year ago even. I didn't know if it would ever look like this again. Praise God, it does. But we can't stop. 
We can't just look around and go, oh, this looks good. Because you know what? There's space in here. Nehemiah looked at the city and he said, there's room. There's all kinds of room for people. There's room for more people in here. And you know what? When we fill up this room and we fill up the room at 830, then we'll figure out a way to make another one. We can't stop. We have to keep going. We have to keep pursuing people passionately. And not just, not just the Christians who maybe have gotten outside the city and have gotten comfortable, right? They've established somewhere and they're like, oh, no, we're good right here. You say, no, this is what used to be. You just, you've got to come back to what you used to have. What, you know, get, out of your, get out of your comfort of your habit of not being here and come back. But also our job is to go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, Jesus said, to bring in the lost. And, and what I've seen God do here is there are people that I still haven't seen come back, but there's lots of new folks that the Lord has brought, hasn't he? He's bringing new people, and he's, and he's drawing new folks in. And you know why? Because he's building up something. But we have to passionately pursue people. We can't just look around and settle for what we have. So when we think about what Nehemiah was facing in the houses and inside the city, you don't build a house just to build a house. You build a house because there's a family that's supposed to dwell in that house, right? So Nehemiah looked around and he said, the houses aren't being built. We need to get the people back so that we can build the houses. But it wasn't about the houses. He didn't care about houses. He cared about people. Let's bring the people back. The house of God, this house, this structure, these walls that we have here are not built to be walls that people can drive by and go, oh, what a pretty church. The house of God is built for God's people because God's people is the church and the church is God's people. So we have walls, so that's done. What we're building is from the inside. So these three things, I think, are key. These are things, this is how we grow our families from the inside out. Fearful and faithful leadership in our homes who fear the Lord and are faithful to his word. An invested community. The fact that I'm going to take spiritual ownership over the leadership of my home and the spiritual well-being of my home. I'm not going to contract it out to professional Christians. I'm going to invest not just in my family, but in the lives of my church family because I love them and care about them. And then to passionately pursue people. Who's God put on your heart? Many of you can probably look around the room and, and look at this and say, you know what, I remember, I remember this person. I haven't seen them in a really long time. You don't have to wait on me to call them. You don't have to wait on one of our deacons to reach out to them and say, hey, we want you to come back to church. The Lord puts them on your heart. Pursue them. Pursue people. Pursue people passionately. We do those three things. God will build our churches from the inside out. And he will build our homes from the inside out. So what's your assignment? Where is it? Where is it in those three things maybe that you look at and you go, Wow, I've, I've really kind of dropped the ball and fallen short. In that one, in that one, you may be looking at it going, man, I've, uh, I'm, I'm not doing well in all of them. Well, now is a great time for you 
to, to recommit these things to the Lord. And if we as a church commit to do these things together, then he'll build us the way he wants us built from the inside out.